Hi, I'm Sonia Jean Killebrew, and this is Black America and COVID, an oral history project. I started this project during Black History Month of 2022 because I wanted to provide a platform for Black Americans to share their stories about living, working, and or going to school during the COVID-19 pandemic. I also wanted to provide a space for people to memorialize someone who is a Black American who sadly lost their life during the COVID-19 pandemic. I was inspired by the work of Zora Neale Hurston, author and anthropologist, to record the experiences of Black Americans in their own voices. My goal is to get my recordings into museums, such as the Smithsonian Museum of African American History and Culture, or the Schomburg, or the Library of Congress's Folklife Museum. I'll share a little bit about me and my family history, and then I'll speak to my guests. I'm a Black American. My dad was African American and Indigenous American. His ancestors were enslaved in Georgia. In fact, we still have our family slave name, which is Killebrew. My dad, Dr. Terrence Killebrew, met my mom in graduate school at the New School in New York when they were both earning their master's degrees in psychology. And I'm a fourth generation teacher. So my mother is a retired New York City teacher. My grandmother was a teacher on the island of Jamaica for 20 years and then in New York for 20 years. My great-grandmother was a teacher in Jamaica up until she got married. She was the daughter of an Irish woman and a black man. She stopped working after she got married because it wasn't considered respectable for a married woman to continue working in the late 1800s. And ironically, my mother began teaching long after she got married in the late 1900s. So, without further ado, I'm excited to speak with my guest today. My name's Akim St. Omer, born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. Still reside in the same neighborhood that I was born in. So I'm in Flatbush. Um, my grandparents moved to Brooklyn in the 1960s, 1970s from Trinidad, um, ended up being one of those first immigrant waves to buy property in Flatbush. And we've pretty much been in that neighborhood since. Oh, amazing. And how do you identify as Caribbean American or African American or Black? Yeah, I, I could I identify as Black. Um, I, my my history is rooted in the Caribbean, but I also understand that that history is also rooted in Africa. So I try to be as broad about my diasporic background as possible. And what would you like to share about living and working during the pandemic in twenty 2020 twenty and twenty twenty one? It has been probably one of the most challenging yet rewarding times professionally for me. I started um, at the current organization that I'm at now in October of 2019. So right before the pandemic um, hit. So we were all in person from October, March, everything shuts down. And I really realized the importance at that time of being comfortable with change and being able to pivot and switch and figure out ways in which your skill set that you've developed over years can be applicable in new times and in new spaces. So, you know, my work really shifted and I wanna say uh, in the middle of 2020 after George Floyd got murdered, 
um, I was asked by my organization to co-chair an equity task force. And out of that work came the, the board of trustees funding a full-time director of diversity. And I was named the director of diversity at my organization in August of last year. So this is all during the both the global pandemic of COVID and the other pandemic that always rages of racism. So it's been an interesting pivot professionally. And I've always been rooted in this diversity and equity work, but to finally have it as like my job has been really rewarding, but also super challenging because I'm definitely building an airplane while I fly it. And that is super, super interesting at a time like this. I'm glad you said that. I was talking to someone about the role of being the diversity and equity and inclusion director. And I thought like, how, how do you do that? Especially during this, the Black Lives Matter movement. It, it, is, it is definitely one of those things where you have to be comfortable and not knowing how each day is gonna be. Um, I think a lot of this work, um, especially for an organization like the one I work at, it's a brand new role for the organization. It's a brand new role for me. So it's, it's both understanding the, the capabilities and capacities of both myself versus the organization, but also understanding that it has you have to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. And part of that being uncomfortable is just not knowing what today, what tomorrow is going to bring. I'll give you an example. Today, I was filmed for, we have a gala next month. I was filmed for a segment for the gala. Then I jumped into an interview for a candidate that we're trying to hire. Then I jumped into a debrief for that. Then I jumped into this. Like, it's just one of those things where you just never realize what your days are gonna be. Some days are busy, some days are not. Some days are more strategy focused. Some days are more on the ground. We need to get things done. So I enjoy that aspect of it, but it's definitely challenging, especially for a place that has never had this role before. And that's kind of the, the experience that I think a lot of folks are, are noticing in, 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 the, in their different spaces. And so were you working from home during the pandemic? Or? So it, it's been the beginning of the pandemic until I want to say middle or end of last year, quarter three or quarter four of last year, everything was pretty much um, virtual. So, you know, the office was open. People could come in as they felt. Some folks came in. Um, I will say I probably came in between March of 2020 and uh, I would say January of this year, maybe 10, 15 times in total. Um, now, as we've trying to kind of get through a new sense of normal, folks are coming in a bit more frequently. I don't ever envision a situation or scenario where folks will have to come in five days a week. Um, but I definitely see a situation where folks might have to come in maybe once or twice. But it really is one of those things where we're trying to make it so that people are making their own schedules and their own ways of working that work for them. I think what we realized in the pandemic is that at the very least, just commuting in and out, getting to work and getting home is probably the biggest energy sucker that people experience because you have to deal with sitting in traffic, sitting on a train. So those things that we've kind of taken out, we've seen productivity from, from our employees go up. We've seen, I think, the energy from our employees go up. So I think there's some benefits to that. And I don't ever envision us telling folks to come back in five days a week again. In fact, I've made it very clear if I'm told to do that, I probably won't last at the organization. That's been the trend that I, when I'm speaking to people who are working from home, they said their productivity has increased greatly without having to commute on a subway or driving. Right, exactly. And I think that's been the biggest thing is how do you use that time that you were used to being on a train or being in traffic? How do you take that time and allocate it to something else? And I think, you know, being able to just wake up and start work as opposed to gearing up and getting ready to face, you know, whatever you're going to face outside can be super challenging. And I think folks have leaned into that in a way that I'm not 100% sure folks really knew how much the commuting was impacting them until they didn't have to do it. Uh, I remember there was one point, uh, 
couple months ago where I decided to commute in to work um, and then commute back out to work both during rush hour. So did rush hour in the morning and did rush hour in the evening. And by the time I got home, I sat down and I was like, I did that for five days a week for like 20 years. Like, what was, why was that the way we were working? Like, that was not beneficial to anybody's health, especially mine. So I really realized at that moment the value of being able to craft and be flexible and creating your own schedule. Because what that creates is that work-life balance piece that I think if people are really serious about it, they can kind of create some of that in their own spaces as they navigate it. And can you describe 24-hour day during the pandemic from waking up, working, and what you did after work? Right. Um, so I think it's probably best to do that in two ways. So let me describe like the beginning of the pandemic, because I think the okay. beginning of the pandemic was very different than now. Yeah. So we shut down, I think it was around the same time that most people shut down at Friday, I think like March 17th, 2020. And it was at that point, um, as people are getting ready to leave, you know, I'm packing up my desk and I'm putting things in the boxes and I'm getting ready to go. And a colleague looked at me kind of incredulously and goes, you know, why are you clearing everything out? I'll see you in two weeks. And I looked at them and I looked and I was like, you will not see me in two weeks. And they go, what are you talking about? I was like, I did a lot of reading. Like I, re cause I'm typical prep nerd book. I'm always about the book, right? right. So I was like, let me Google 1918 to 1920 pandemic. And I was like, oh, this took three years. Okay, cool. So I will see y'all at most in a year. And they laughed, people laughed. And I was like, oh, who's gonna get the last laugh on this one? So it was at that point where, you know, going home the following week, it was, okay, how are we implementing something that's never been implemented before, right? Where I work at, I work at the Girl Scouts of Greater New York. There's always been a, a history of um, some level of flexible work. You know, some folks are out in the field, so they're not in the office all the time. So that was part of the culture, but it really wasn't like across the company. It was like only certain departments. So we ramped up the, the week after we tried to figure out, okay, so folks are getting up at this time. So I would get up at nine. I'd log in. I'd do some work, um, grab lunch, probably take a walk, um, get back on to some work try to shut off at a certain time because I knew that if I didn't set that standard for myself at shutting off at a certain time, it was always going to be something work-related that I could do. So I made sure that when it was time for dinner, I would literally close my laptop, put it away. It's not seen. Um, and kind of set those boundaries for myself and those kind of guardrails for myself so that as the as the pandemic increased or got or, or became different, that I wasn't, I didn't set myself up for like not being able to do certain things based on the way I started the process. Mm -hmm. By the time we got to, I want to say, maybe uh, let's go to August when I took the role officially that I have now in August I kind of set up my own systems I kind of knew what I was going to manage but it was a new role right so it was it involved a lot of Zoom meetings especially in the first month I, I made the decision to meet individually with every member of the staff in my first month a month and a half so some of those days would begin at nine some of those days would end at five or six and I'm just on the calls all day. But some days I made sure that my schedule wasn't like that. So I would have those gaps. But again, it's that flexibility, right? So I think 20 to 24 hours look super different from the beginning versus now. And what I'm trying to do now in my space is think about, you know, what does the future of this look like, right? Like we're not, we won't always have to sit down and work from a particular home, right? Or work from a particular space. What does it look like if you can go to a cafe in the middle of the day and sit down and log on to the Wi-Fi and work from the cafe? What does it look like if you can take a trip to another state and work from another state for a couple of days? Like, what does that look like? Because I think that flexibility piece is the piece that folks are still having some difficulty understanding because there's this rush to, hey, everybody return to work. And I'm always telling people when they make these suggestions, I always ask the question, you have to ask yourself, why are you saying these things, right? Because if you don't ask yourself the why, then it's going to be hard to convince people otherwise that they should they should come back and do the thing that even before the pandemic really wasn't working.
Mm-hmm. I agree with you. And I was a Girl Scout, so I'd love to hear that oh. you're looking for Girl Scouts of the Americas. Yeah, like you, I also Googled um, the flu pandemic in the early 1900s, and I saw also that it lasted two to three years. And so I was like, yeah, like you, I thought, okay, we're going to be home for two to three years. Three years, right. Why would we not, right? (laughs) They were that much smarter than, you know, like everybody has to navigate this. And I think history has a way of, it may not always um, repeat itself, but it definitely rhymes. And I was like, okay, this might be a time when history is giving us enough information where we can kind of come up with certain decisions based on that. Absolutely. So it's good to hear that you weren't working till nine o'clock because I just- No, 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 no. So, so, so I'm gonna tell you now, that's something that I, I was not on that from, from the very beginning I started as a professional. I was like, I like my time. So I was not one of those people that felt compelled to sit down and always be working. Mm-hmm. I understand culturally why that can be. And I can understand certain industries where that feels like the need to do. But I've always told people, if you can, if you can, let's say you drop do you get sick or you die today? The email about your death from your job won't come until nine o'clock the next morning. Uh, so if the email about your death won't come till nine o'clock the next morning, why should you be rushing to get an email out tonight at 9 p.m., right? And, and it's one of those things where I, I always try to read to, to, to let people know a job is not your life. Don't let your job be your life because oftentimes when jobs become your life, then you realize that you are deeply, deeply unfulfilled because you're always tying your value and who you are to a metric into an organization that at the end of the day will have no problem getting rid of you. And then that's the way I kind of look at work. That's profound. That's capitalism, right? That's capitalism, right? And capitalism has never been good for Black people anyway, right? So why should I continually perpetuate the systems that are designed inherently against me, right? So trying to break up some of those systems, it can be challenging. And, And I've told people all the time, I know the way that I work may not be for everybody, but I always tell people, if you set those boundaries up for yourself now, it will make it easier when you have to implement them going forward, because people kind of know that that's the kind of way you are. Absolutely. So then after work, were you taking walks during the pandemic or going for yeah. runs? Yeah, that's a, you know, that's a good, that, that's a super important part for me. I remember telling my girlfriend, um, and at the time we were living in a studio apartment. So I, I told her, I was like, every single day, I'm going to go outside. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it still looked like, what do you mean you're going outside? I was like, no, every single day I'm going outside. And I don't think, and I think generally that a lot of people don't realize the value of literally being outside, getting sunlight, getting air, walking, like what it does for your body. And I saw a lot of friends who, you know, decided not to do anything and sit in their apartment for months on end when it was time for them to reemerge, because that's what I called it. It was a reemersion, right? When it was time for them to come out and reemerge, the level of anxiety and, 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 um, and fear that existed in them was way higher than those of us who, you know, were thoughtful in our own processes about getting here and getting outside. And I think that really saved me. And it goes back to, you know, growing up in, you know, New York City, as a black and brown person in New York City, we're always outside. Like, right, if you grow up in the hood, you dudes from the hood are outside, people walking around. And those are the things that we do as both an act of self-preservation, because sometimes the spaces that we literally live in can be tough and toxic for us, like the houses or the apartments or the spaces that we live in. But also, I think in a city like New York, if you're not walking around, you're not experiencing the, the full totality of what this city can can bring. And as someone who's always been curious and, 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 and about that, I, I view my walking as a way to dig deeper on who I am as a person, but also it allows me that, that moment of clarity when I could just put on a headset, 
maybe listen to the sounds around me just showing out so I can have that moment of getting my cardio up, but also thinking about whatever is going on in my head. Well then, so were you also going out to the grocery store during the pandemic? Yeah. You were? I was, I was doing most of the grocery shopping, um, oh. which was, which was cool. I, luckily I lived, you know, two blocks away from a grocery store. I, I live in a part of, of Brooklyn where food insecurity is not really a, a big issue. Um, but yeah, so I would, you know, doing the groceries. I'm not a big, I'm not, I don't personally believe in ordering groceries. I think that I like to see my groceries. I like to, like, you know, price compare, do the whole thing. So yeah, I would go out, go to the groceries. Um, I would try to support as many local businesses in terms of restaurants as I could. You know, we, we did something like every Friday, we'd order takeout from a restaurant just to keep, you know, those restaurants bottom lines open. And, you know, I think it, it serves it serves multiple purposes. Those businesses can continue to to thrive, but also because I had a little bit more expendable income than I had before, because I wasn't traveling to work, I wasn't doing all, I was like, let me at least use the little extra money I have to keep some of the places that um, I hope to see opened up back again when the pandemic opened up or, or ended, uh, keep, keep going. So I really used, I really, really thoughtful about the way I use my money, the way I use my time, and also the way I use like literally getting in and out of places. Wow. And I guess, were you wearing a mask and gloves? Or? Yeah, mask, gloves, the whole thing. Um, well, no, not gloves. I think gloves were a little much. <laughs> but I did have them. I was like, because I would walk into some places and I'd be like, oh, so you just have a whole army military suit on. This is a, this is a little aggressive. But I did do the mask. I, I was always <laughs> cognizant of that. But I also understood that, you know, one of the things I think that, that really paralyzed many of us was just the fear of the unknown right yeah and I was like I had to ground myself in science and understanding that things will shift and understanding that the answer today may not be the answer tomorrow and be comfortable in that and I don't think as a society we're good at that right like I don't think we're good with change I don't think we're good with shifting I don't think we're good with, with seeing that piece and you really saw that kind of play out and you still do see it play out in how people are responding to this pandemic you're absolutely right. Like when the CDC changed the amount of required days quarantining from 10 to 5, like the whole country just like had like a, a meltdown. Right. And I was like, I was like, maybe there's a reason to doing that. Granted, some of that reason could be capitalism, but right. I, was like, I don't think that's the sole reason. I don't think it, it wasn't the same virus that we had two years before. So people really are not good at change. And I think that was that shows itself in, in so many ways during this pandemic. That's true. The virus mutated to Omicron, which I actually caught this year mm. at the end of January, which right, right, right. I heard was less um, severe, but mm -hmm. um, but I still had shortness of breath and I had to sit for like a few days. But, right, right. I had a lot of friends who caught it too, but I was like, it, 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 you know, I told people, you know, imagine if the original form of COVID was as virulent as Omicron, we would be in a totally different situation. So we have to be able to realize that like, things change, things mutate, things become different, and that we as people also change, become different. We have to be mindful of like how those two things can be interconnected too. Yeah. So do you have any memories that you want to share about the pandemic? I think the, the biggest, the two biggest memories that I have were in the very beginning. Um, I remember going outside and it might have been a little later than I normally would. It was kind of dark and look and standing on a corner of Nostrand Avenue, which is a super busy thoroughfare in Flatbush and literally looking up and down the avenue and not seeing a car. Like literally the whole, from the top of the avenue all the way down, there was just no traffic. And I was like, this was jarring. And then I think the other thing that was super jarring, well, two things, the other thing that was jarring was, I remember the sound every night of ambulances rushing to the hospital. Um, we, at the time we had lived, a, like two or three blocks away from um, one of the main hospitals in Flatbush. And you could literally hear that was the only sound 
you would hear night on end. And I was like, that, that was traumatizing. I think the, the, the other thing that I remember, it was a particular point where my mother, my mother who is in her early 50s, described one day going to three virtual funerals. And it was one of those moments when I had to tell her, I was like, don't ever do that again. Because the level of grief that it takes to go to one virtual funeral, mm -hmm. I can only imagine how much that took from her to do it two other times during the day. And unfortunately, it was so common for people to attend multiple funerals online, on Zoom. And, and it's just one of the, most, the worst ways, I think, to grieve the loss of somebody is doing it virtually. It just doesn't have the same community piece that I think is so important for us as a society as we grieve. I agree. Did you attend any funerals on Zoom? I, I attended one. Um, and I was like, okay, I'm going to do this because I'm going to do that. But it was something I did not want to do too much of. Luckily, I didn't know too many people that died directly from COVID. I had more like uh, friends and their parents or friends or parents or friends pass away or like like third or fourth degrees away from me passed away so I didn't have anyone directly but yeah it, it is tough to to experience a zoom funeral it's just it's it's heartbreaking oh it's it's absolutely heartbreaking yeah like I experienced too you probably knew um Jason Ford Jason Ford is actually um Jason Ford went to the same high school that I went to so oh. I knew Jason from our time at Little Red. Um, oh. So I knew him fairly well. So I, I didn't attend his funeral, but I attended the wake in person. And I was like, to see someone, you know, as energetic and as vibrant and as deeply compassionate about the community at age 43, um, just die, which was one of those moments when it put a lot of things in perspective. Um, mm -hmm. But it also showed me the value of community coming mm -hmm. together to support um, him and his family but it also showed the value of life, right? Like, you know, sometimes we tie our success and our failures to the work that we do. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the work that we do is just a job, right? But here's a, someone who left Accenture uh, doing really well there to, because he wanted to see black and brown boys get some of the same academic opportunities and scholarship opportunities that he did. And he poured his life into the work so much so that he literally left his heart on the field. So it's, it's one of those, it was, it was traumatizing, but I think it definitely showed the, the beauty of, what life can be if you fully live it and yeah. also can show sometimes you don't know when it'll be what hour of any day and we just all have to keep working at it so that when it does come somebody can say something good about us at, at, at our funerals wow that's beautiful the way he put it he literally left his heart on the field yeah yeah i think what i, what I watched the funeral um on um like I, that was a school funeral that i attended and i remember his the school that he worked at the principal at the school spoke at his funeral because they were college friends. And he said, you know, I don't want you all to think about Innovation High School, which is the high school that he worked at. I don't want you to think about it as the place that Jason died. I want you to think about it as a place where he lived. Mm. And I was like, geez, I was like, imagine, you know, the impact that he had and literally died at the place that he had that impact. It was just, it was just so, so moving. And, and I think his story is one that will continue to impact communities going forward. If not the prep community, then the Wesleyan community, the Little Red community, and definitely the basketball community. He's definitely one of those people that, sure, he, he, he lived, he lived. Absolutely. I, I had watched his funeral actually on my lunch break because I was teaching mm. And then I was like, this was a bad idea because I'm making the work <laughs> and I'm trying not to cry. And the students yeah. are like, are you sad? And I'm just like, mm. yeah. this is a bad idea. Yeah, <laughs> so, I, I told my supervisor, I was like, I'm not logging in after this. And she was like, I totally understand it. Yeah, it was, it was tough. It was yeah. tough. And it still is tough. It still is tough. Yeah. 
Wow, I didn't realize you went to Little Red with him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he graduated five years before I did. He graduated, I think, in 97, um, and I graduated in 2002. Oh, you're younger than me? I didn't mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm Jason's year, 97. Okay, okay. Yeah. It's like, at a certain point, we all look the same age. Yeah, we all look the same. After we all look like, 21. Trying to maintain. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I tell right. myself. No, absolutely. No, you're 100% right. You're 100% right. Wow. This has been amazing talking to you. I'm telling everyone that once I get a, 100 interviews, I'll submit it to the Smithsonian and the Schomburg and ask that they create these oral archives. And right, right. eventually I'd like to have an event where we all get together and talk. Yeah. Everybody has a different experience. Even the teachers had different experiences. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. hearing you talk about this, this new role, this director of diversity, equity, and inclusion coming out of the, the Black Lives Matter movement, like that's inspiring. Oh, I do want to ask you, I didn't attend any of the protests because I didn't want to get shot at. Right. Right, but did right. you attend any Black Lives Matter protests? This go around, I didn't. And it was for a few reasons. One, I just didn't feel comfortable being in super huge crowds. Um, another reason was, you know, I, I realized that as I've gotten a little bit older, I think that on the ground, boots on the ground protesting, um, I wouldn't say it's for young people, but I think yeah. they have the energy to kind of handle that a little bit better. Yeah. Whereas me, I thought that the work that I was doing within the organization that I work for and within the community that I am a part of, I thought was more impactful at that particular moment. But I always tell people at, and at the heart of it, I'm always a protester, I'm always an activist, and that'll always be part of what I do. And I'm sure at some point there'll be another cause or something for me to protest and I'll be out there with, with the masses. There is something about being part of that community that has been restorative for me. And that's definitely something that, that, that keeps me going. Yeah, me too. It was inspiring seeing so yeah. many young people out there and young people, like young white people, Latino people, yeah. like the whole LGBTQIA plus community. Everyone was together. That was inspiring. Yeah, no, I thought that was amazing. It was great to see so many people who never thought that they would be doing something like that, really join in something that was bigger than them. I thought it was great. Well, well, thank you so much for your time. I know it's the end of your work day and I really appreciate your time. So thank you. No problem. Glad to do it. Glad to be supportive and look forward to hearing it when it comes out. Absolutely. Have a great night and I'll be in touch. Thanks. You too. Be well. Bye. Thank you for listening to Black America and COVID, an oral history project. If you would like to include your personal history in the archives, then you can email me at soniakillabrew at gmail.com. My email is in the show notes of the podcast. And you can also record a voice note on your phone or device and email it to me as well. If you would like to get updates on when podcasts are uploaded or see me talk about the process behind creating the podcast, then you can follow me on Instagram at Black America and COVID. It's all one word, all lowercase. There you can message me if you have any questions or feedback. Also, if you give the podcast five stars on wherever you listen to podcasts, then it will make it more visible for people to find it. And then I will in turn be able to reach more people to interview. Thanks again for listening. My name is Sonia Jean Killebrew, and this is Black America and COVID, an oral history project.